there's something about choruses like that last one that we sang that uh, just really stir my heart because we know because of what John was able to see and, and that we get a glimpse of in the book of Revelation that he got an opportunity to actually see into heaven and to see what's happening around the throne of God. And, you know, one of the things that he recorded is how the living creatures and the elders and the hosts of heaven are literally in the presence of Jesus and of God the Father and are bowing and, and giving honor and just saying again and again, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. And there's just, I don't know, as we were singing that and realizing how our voices are mingling with the voices of heaven to declare the greatness and the worthiness of the Lord Jesus. And just to, to pause and consider as we were singing that and in my mind's eye to just see that reality and to know that is real in heaven right now. You know, we just get so locked in to some of the difficulties and the challenges and the yuck of life and just trying to figure out our finances and how we're going to get through this week and all that we've got to do and all that our kids are into and just all the stuff that we're dealing with. And it feels like this is just the whole of, of life and that this is all that we're going to ever know. And to just be reminded that there is a reality that is coming where in Christ's presence, they're not trying to figure out how they're going to iron out the problems in the economy. They're not trying to figure out how the bills are going to get paid this week. They're not trying to figure out how we're going to juggle all the demands of the schedule for this week. That there is a place, there is a reality where Christ is at the center of everything. Life is put in order and it is good where the Lamb is on the throne. He is reigning and everything is subject to Him. And the day is coming when we're going to get to enter into the fullness of that. And it's going to be good. It's going to be good beyond words. And it's nice for us to just have times when we can be still and we can draw in and be reminded that He is real and that He reigns, that heaven is still open and Jesus is still on the throne. So, we celebrate that today as we dive into His Word. Let me pause and say to those of you just joining us live on the web, we are glad to have you be a part of worship today here at Freedom. And we are in a series right now. We are about a month deep in a series on Christ-centered, God-centered living. And we've been talking about how this really is a process uh, that takes some time, that really takes some intentionality on our part to move from what is normal and natural, and that is that I am born with just me-centered living. And so are you. We're just born living a life where I tend to go after what makes me comfortable, where I pursue the things that interest me and that seem to advance my comfort and my career and those kinds of things. And if I become a Christian, then I ask God to be a part of that. I ask God to bless that. And that doesn't come close to resembling anything that we find in the Scriptures as what God's plan is. That what God is calling us to do is to move from a life that is all about me, where I make the plan and I have the agenda to transition from that to a place where everything is centered on Christ, who He is, and what He says, and what He's doing. And what we have seen as we've been moving through this progression is the beginning point in this process is to just simply recognize that God is powerfully at work around you. And that we've got to sort of let go of this idea of, you know, feeling like, well, you know, we're holding on until Jesus comes back and then God's re-involved in the world or needing to go out and try and find some church or some place or some group where God is at work and to realize, no, God is really at work in the world that you live in. The problem is we tend to live with blinders on. 
I'm so focused by nature, I would be so focused on me and what I'm interested in and what I'm doing and just hoping that God will come along and bless that, that I'll miss most of what God is doing. And the first thing is to just open our eyes and to begin to say, God is at work. Where is God working around me? And as I begin to do that, you realize, yes, God is at work. And the primary thing that God is doing, the central piece in his work is he is pursuing people. And, oh, yeah, I'm one of the people that he is pursuing. I want to promise you this. God is chasing hard after you. He is pursuing you relentlessly. You may feel like you are far from God. You may feel like, well, I haven't been in church in ages or I've gotten tangled up in some things that I shouldn't have. And I've stopped doing the things that I used to do that I know I ought to be doing. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter. He is in hot pursuit of you. And when you recognize that, then all the ought to's and all the legalism can be let go of. And you can just begin to discover again the joy of now operating in a relationship where this God who is hot after you is not just after you so you can have a warm fuzzy with him every day. He's pursuing you because... He is calling you to be a son or daughter who is integrally involved in his work in the world where he is ushering in the kingdom. And so now, as you recognize his work and his pursuit of you, you begin to realize, wow, this is more than just ritual. This is way more than just going to church. God is alive and at work and he's talking to me. He is really speaking into my life, inviting me to dialogue with him and not just to talk to him, but to really get involved in what he's doing. And so we spent the last two weeks talking about God speaking to us. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the big barriers in our lives that will keep us from hearing and recognizing the voice of God and how we get rid of those. And then last Sunday, we pressed in on the the question of, okay, if God's talking to us, how does he do that? I mean, in real practical, understandable terms, how does God speak to us? And we, we discovered seven different ways that God will speak to us. If you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to go back and listen online Because this is such a central piece in the whole thing. If you can't hear the voice of the Lord, then the things that we're talking about are just going to be wasted on you. Because God, if He's going to be the centerpiece in your life, He's got to be speaking to you about what you're doing today and this week and how you're living your life and what you'll be doing this week so that this is truly an interactive relationship. And so now today is the immediate follow-on piece to this. And let me just go ahead and tell you what kind of what today is. You, you know in commercials now, it seems like half the commercials that you watch on TV, they're all advertising prescription drugs and how they're going to make your life better. They're going to cure all of your ills. But what happens in the last 10 or 15 seconds of every one of those commercials? A, a voice comes on talking faster than the human ear is supposed to be able to understand, and that's half the point. They don't want you to hear it. And they name for you All of the bad things that may happen to you are all the difficulties that you may have if you take this wonder drug. You know, it's like, warning, you know, some who've taken this drug have experienced, you know, and they name off all these things. And it's like, I think somewhere in that I heard your arm may fall off or something. I mean, it's like all this bad stuff that could happen. Well, today is sort of in a spiritual sense. It is the disclaimer that goes with everything that I have said so far. This is the warning label. That goes with everything that we've talked about. You get involved in a relationship with God. You begin to have an ear that is open to what the Lord is saying. And you begin to let your life center around what God is saying and doing. And you need to be warned. Oh, your faith is about to be tested. You are about to be stretched. You're about to go places you never thought you would go. You're about to be involved in doing things that you can't possibly do. 
be warned in advance. Because you're about to be drawn into the God zone where only God can accomplish the things that he's going to pull you into. So five truths that I want to share with you today in relation to that thought. And the first one is simply this, that God is in the process of building a fearless faith within you. When you think about who is God, who and what is God, at the heart of it all, God is Father. Wouldn't you agree with that? Our most fundamental understanding of God is He is he is your creator, but he wants to be your father. He invites you to be a part of his family through, through faith in Christ. Once you trust in Christ, receive forgiveness of sin, you become a son or daughter of God. He is your father. And I want to be clear about this. He is a good father, and he has good goals for his kids. Now, how many of you in the room are parents? Some of us are grandparents. A lot, a lot of parents in the room. I want you to think about this. You don't have to answer this one out loud. But did you ever think in terms of what was your goal? What was your primary goal or is your goal, if you're still raising kids, in raising your children? Now, I've been doing this for a pretty long time. Some of you a lot longer than me. I've been at it for almost 25 years as a parent. And, and it is funny how you develop, develop at least a different subset of goals when they become teenagers, don't you? You know, you have all these lofty goals and then they get to be teenagers and start living as teenagers. And it's like... Okay, my goal is that they survive to be alive in C21. You know, would love to see them not go to jail. Would love, you know, to see them. You know, it's, it's all these knots. Would love for them not to kill anyone with their vehicle when they turn 16. Would love for them, you know, whatever, not to be pregnant, not to be whatever. We, we come up with these, these lists that when you really boil them down, they really aren't the goals that we ought to have as parents. I, I would just say... For us as parents, the simplest goal that we should have when we have kids is that we would take this gift, this child that God gives us, that is completely dependent upon us for everything, and we teach them to grow up and get to a place where they transfer from being dependent on us for everything to getting to a place where they don't depend on us for anything, but they look to God for everything. That's successful parenting. Would you agree with that? Transferring that thing... You're totally dependent on me. You get to a place you don't depend on me for anything. You depend on God for everything. Now, I will say as an aside, my generation has fouled this thing up in a big way. My generation has been the generation that I think we're, we're fighting universal codependency. We're fighting universal you know, codependent enabling. Have you noticed how much of our generation, those of you who are around my age, that we so loved having our kids depend on us, and it's like we enjoyed that in the relationship, as codependent people will do, that we just never could totally handle them not depending on us. And so we created a dynamic where, you know, we wanted them to have an expectation of life that you can't possibly fulfill when you're 19, 20, 21 years old. And so you're going to have to depend on us for the life that we have developed in you a desire for. And so what you wind up with is a bunch of 20-something-year-olds who don't know how to live without us as their parents, and so they go out into the world, and it doesn't welcome them with open arms and give them a 3,000-square-foot house and two SUVs and make sure that they can afford all of that. And when that doesn't all work out for them, what do they do? Like a boomerang, they come running back to Mama and Daddy who welcome them with open arms. Okay, this is not even what the sermon's on. I just got on a tear there, but, you know, this is... This is what a codependent parent will do. Let me just say to you, God ain't one. God is not a dysfunctional parent. He is a healthy parent who is moving us toward a specific goal. And here is God's goal for us. This is what God is doing in your life. He is creating in you a fearless 
faith. We asked the question a few months ago as we were searching the Gospels and really trying to get at the heart of what Jesus taught. One of the fundamental questions that we asked, spent a whole Sunday on, was what is it that Jesus promised to the people who follow him? And it really, I had so much fun in that sermon, in, in that series, unpacking answers to questions that we might think we know the answer to. And then you look at the scriptures and find out, oh, my answer wasn't true. When we ask the question, what does Jesus promise to his followers? And it's like, well, naturally we would say, well, heaven and a better life, a blessed life, less trouble. You know, you just go down the list of all the things that so many popular preachers on TV are are promising. And, and I, you know, yes, the followers of Christ go to heaven. But we're saying, no, in the Gospels, what did Jesus promise for his followers? And the extraordinary thing is, Jesus didn't go around talking to his followers about, hey, follow me and you get to go to heaven when you die. That is not what he talked about. He did not talk about you will live with greater prosperity, you will have less trouble, you will have more health. He did not talk about those things. What you find Jesus repeating again and again and again is one simple theme. You follow me and in return, you will have a deep, fearless, courageous faith that will enable you to follow me in all things. It's amazing when you actually start looking for that, you realize this is a strong recurring theme in the Gospels. This is what God is promising to us. It's what Jesus promises, what God is doing in you. And this is where we start in Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews, you don't have to turn there because we're, we're actually, if you want to turn somewhere, turn to Joshua. That's where we're about to camp is the beginning of Joshua. But in Hebrews 11, the writer says in verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible for you and for me to please God. Because anybody who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who, who seek him. Now, he has defined for us what faith is. He started out in verse 1 by saying, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. We're going to go back and revisit that verse at the end because it is a critically important verse that is easy for us to try and misapply. God is seeking to develop this kind of faith in us and the doing of that, the accomplishing of that is not through a class. You don't even get it primarily by going to church. You're going to get it through the experiences of life and some of them are going to be really, really scary experiences. That's why he would say in Joshua chapter 1, passages like verse 9 where he says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I want you just as sort of a fun assignment this, this afternoon, go home and read Joshua 1. It's real short. You can read it in about two minutes. And I want you to notice how many times God says, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Don't be terrified. And it's kind of like on about the fifth time, if I'm Joshua, I'm going, God, I wasn't so scared. But the more you keep saying that, you are freaking me out. Over and over. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be terrified. It's like, God, the more times you say that, the more I'm thinking you are about to knock me over with something really, really terrifying. And he was, by the way. But it's just part of the process. God's got a goal. He is developing not just men and women who is like, uh, okay, you pass muster. 
you get to go to heaven. That is not the goal. The goal is that He would raise up mature sons and daughters who represent Him, who trust Him, who believe in who He is and what He's doing and in His provision and who can represent Him well in the world so that when you walk into a situation, you walk into a conflict, you walk into a crisis, you walk in where there is a great need and you can speak for God. You can represent Jesus. Jesus is there because you're there. God's raising up those kinds of sons and daughters. But there is a process of developing that kind of faith in us. He says, don't, don't you be terrified because some stuff is coming. So that brings us to the, the second truth, and that is that when God speaks, your faith is going to be tested. You're going to be stretched. By what God says in Joshua chapter one, we're going to begin with verse one and I'm going to take a moment to set the stage. If you just started reading the Bible in Genesis one and you read straight through to Joshua, which is the sixth book, Joshua is such a fun, it's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. You'll find that the four fifths of the Pentateuch from Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is the central character. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, Moses is one of the two towering characters. He is the greatest figure in all of the Old Testament. He and David are, are the two towering figures in the Old Testament. He's just a leader. We cannot, I mean, I've tried. There is no one in the 20th or 21st century that comes anywhere close to being a parallel to this. I mean, no one in modern history has been such a towering figure of a leader as what Moses has been. I'll just remind you very quickly that when we ended Genesis, where the story left off, Abraham's descendants were about four generations down the line. They're 70 in number, and they've gone to Egypt for relief from the famine, and they're living as guests in Egypt, and they're living well, escaping the famine. When the story is picked up, it's almost 400 years later when you just move from Genesis to Exodus. And now, in the span of four centuries, 70 people have increased in number to about 2 million. They're, they're soon going to be 2 million. And they have gone from being guests to now being slaves in Egypt. They, are, they have, as a whole people, have been enslaved. Life is very difficult for them. And God is burdened about this. And God is on the move. God is about to do something. He is active, working to free His people. And when God is about to move, He speaks. doesn't do anything without speaking to His people. He speaks to Moses and tells Moses what He's about to do. And so, the whole story of the Exodus, God speaking through Moses and leading the people out. And there's that whole miraculous story of their deliverance and the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. And now they are finally free. Now they are free to go in and possess what has been promised to them for more than four centuries. Back in Genesis 12 and, and 15 and following, God has promised again and again to Abraham and his descendants the promised land, which is today not only what is today geopolitical Israel, but it is the surrounding territory. It's part of Lebanon and Syria and Jordan. Uh, it's a much larger territory than what they currently possess. But, you know, he said, this is going to be an eternal inheritance. Now go and possess the land. So Moses is leading the people to go and do that. And he's given them the law through Moses. And now they've, they've received a word from the Lord. They're going in to take the land. And you remember what they did as a final step before following God and obeying that and taking the land. We're going to send out some spies to scout out the land that we're going to take. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It's amazing how many times right before we get in big trouble, we do something that makes such good sense to us. Isn't that the truth? We're going to send 12 spies. They sent 12 spies. Ten of them did not have courageous faith. Two of them did. Their names were Joshua 
and Caleb. I was determined when we were having kids, if I had a boy, his name was going to be Joshua Caleb. Didn't have any sons. But they're just two men full of faith. I wanted to pass along those names. Joshua and Caleb were the two spies of the twelve who came back and said, Man, that is an amazing land. You will not believe it is a spacious land. It is a fertile land. It is a land with beautiful cities, beautiful fields, vineyards, crops have been planted. And God said, I am giving you the land. You will live in cities that you did not build. You will eat crops that you did not plant. You will enjoy vineyards that you did not cultivate. I'm giving you the land. Ten of the spies said, oh, we saw the same land, but we have a different report. Because the people who live in that land, they live in giant fortified cities. Those people are huge. We felt like grasshoppers next to them. They just look so big to us. There is no way. We are not an army. We're just a band of two million people who don't have weapons. We don't have chariots. And they live in fortified cities protected by armies. There's no way we could take that land. And the people shrunk back in fear. God had said, you go. This is what I'm doing. And they said, we can't. And the anger of the Lord broke out against his people and they suffered the chastisement of God in that moment because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Their faith was tested and they failed the test and they suffered because of it. And the Lord said, now you this entire generation, you will not possess the land. And the people said, oh, I think we messed up. I think we've made a bad mistake. Okay, God, we've thought about it. We're going to take the land now. And they marched out to go and take possession of the land. What's wrong with this equation now? God is no longer giving possession of the land. The only way you could possess that land is when God is moving into the land and giving you the land. Now they've decided to do it on their own. And you know what happened? It's like they ran into a brick wall. They immediately are crushed in defeat and they go running back, licking their wounds, burying their dead. Saying, what do we do now? And the Lord basically said, I'll tell you what you do now. You wander in the wilderness for 40 years while every adult except Joshua and Caleb, the two with fearless faith, while every other adult perishes in the wilderness. So for 40 years, the people of God wander in the wilderness from place to place. This gigantic encampment Basically nomads. And Moses is the only leader that they've known. Now, during that whole time, Joshua has been Moses' helper. It's a pretty cool job. It's really the nicest job. It's kind of like being the second string quarterback. You can be everybody's hero and you never have to put anything on the line. You know, you're never the guy in charge. He is just junior leader. He doesn't have to lead the people. He just gets to be with Moses while Moses leads the people. And when the people are in distress, they look to Moses for justice. When the people are hungry, they go to Moses and say, go to God and get us food. You know, it's through Moses that the people experience God working there. They get manna. They get quail. Water's called forth from the rock. You know, when we need to hear from God, we go to Moses and Moses hears from God for us. And Moses tells us what God says. So it's all been about Moses. What about Joshua? Well, Joshua's with Moses every day. Moses goes into the tent of meeting and the glory cloud descends on the tent and Moses meets with the Lord. Exodus 33 talks with the Lord as a man would with his friend. That's extraordinary. One other person's in the tent every day. Joshua, Moses' assistant. Moses would come out. He'd speak to the people. He'd tell them what God had to say. And it says, but Moses would stay in the tent with the Lord. I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, 
he may be the first guy on my list of biblical characters that I go see. I want to know Joshua. A man full of faith. I want to know what was happening in the tent. I want to know about the relationship that he had with God. That, that's Joshua. But they haven't looked to Joshua for leadership. He's walked with God. He's got faith. But he's never been in charge. When we get to the end of Deuteronomy for 40 years, they've been wandering around, waiting for a generation to die, waiting for a new generation to grow up and be mature. After 40 years, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is dead. And in 40 years, the greatest leader that God's people have ever known. Not only did he not lead them to possess the land, he never even got them across the Jordan River. Where we last see the people of God, they are in what is today Jordan. That is, if you don't know your geography, that is east of Israel. And there is a big, fat river between them and the promised land. Where Joshua picks up, Moses has just died, and the reality is setting in. Oh my goodness, Joshua, who has been in the shadow of Moses all this time, has to follow the greatest leader the people of God have ever known. Wouldn't you not want to have to be Joshua? Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, the Israelites. Are you kidding me? This is like opening week. This is the week where we're going to begin to transition over to Joshua as the leader. In 40 years, we've never set foot in the land. And in the first conversation... You know, it's like day one of week one. God says, Joshua, all right, Moses is dead. You're up. Let me tell you what we've got first on the agenda. You lead these two million people across that river into the land that I promised. How about we save that for next year? How about we take a baby step? We take another lap around the mountain over here. Nope. Joshua, don't be afraid. Now we understand why he keeps saying, you be courageous. Don't be terrified. I'm about to do something because, Joshua, you are up. Now you lead these people in. Would you call that a test of faith? That's a gigantic test of faith. Now you're the one that's got to lead the people. So he says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and courageous. And that leads us to the next truth, the next reality. And that is, you can't stay where you are and go with God. The Israelites tested that out. They tried it, and we've tried it too, haven't we? H hadn't you been at times in your life, oh God, I want to go with you. I, I want to be close to you. And God shows you the next thing that He's doing. And it's like, I don't think I want to do that. But God... Oh, I just want to be near you. I want to be with you. And God says, well, here's where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. Come and join me. I really don't think I want to do that. And we'll miss what God wants. The Israelites, Lord, we think right here is very nice. In fact, Egypt didn't look so bad compared to trying to take that land. You can't stay where you are and go with God. The very next verse, the third verse of Joshua. God says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Just as I promised to Moses. That is a, a, a huge truth right there. I'm going to give you the land, but I'm not going to send a plague ahead of you. I sent a plague, a bunch of plagues into Egypt to get you free. I'm not sending any plagues ahead of you into the promised land. I'm not going to send Ebola or smallpox or anything else to kill off the people before you march in and take it. You get to have the land, but you have to march in and possess the land. 
You've got to go in and fight a battle at every single city and take those cities. You just get the part of the land where you place your feet. It is a reminder that God is powerfully at work in the world. The kingdom of God is on the move and it is expanding, but it does not happen in a vacuum. It only happens where faithful sons and daughters say, we will take the land. We believe that God has given us the land, but only where we're willing to place our feet. This is a great reminder. You get involved with what God is doing. You start listening to what God is saying. I promise you, He will lead you to places that get outside of your comfort zone. He will lead you to places that are unfamiliar. He will lead you to places that are not safe. We could camp on that thought for a while. In middle class American churches, we do not believe that it would be the will of God to go to unsafe places. I know we don't. I've led too many mission trips, had too many people get bowed up at me saying, I can't believe that you're going to take our kids. I can't believe you're going to take a team of adults into these places where things are wild and where there's unrest and where people are being killed for being Christians. I can't believe. Do you think that it is the will of God to stay in safe places? The will of God is to reach the whole world. And you can rest assured, you can't just stay where you are and go with God. You can't be in the middle of what God is doing and just stay in a comfortable place in life. He said, I'll give you the land, but only where you're willing to place your feet. So, God maps out a plan for getting into the land. And here's what he did. He said, I want you to send the Ark of the Covenant with the priest just ahead of the people, about a kilometer ahead of the people. Now, I would remind you, you know when we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, you know what we're talking about. It's, it's a surprisingly small little box, wooden box, covered in gold, and it's got two golden angels with their wings extended inward over the box. The lid of that box is what's known as the mercy seat. And in the box you've got the, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna and the staff of Moses that God had used so powerfully. But that box was a, a tremendously important teaching tool for the people of God. Every time you read about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, you can just mentally insert the idea, presence of God. Ark equals presence of God. Because God is using the ark as a means of teaching his people about himself and about how they come to him and about his holiness and how you know, the presence of the Lord you know, must be with his people and that his presence either brings blessing or cursing depending on whether we're being obedient or not. And so, you know, in this situation, it's just a great picture of that, that he's saying, all right, you're going to go in and you're going to take possession of the land, but you only go where I go before you. The, the very first point that we talked about where God's saying, you know, be strong, be courageous and don't be terrified. The last thing that he says in that in Joshua 1, 9 is because the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. I asked the early service crowd, you know, when you go through life, when you go into scary circumstances, how can you know that God is with you? And I'm not talking about in that sort of general sense of, well, I'm a follower of Christ, and so the Spirit of God is in me, and so that means that God is with me wherever I go. Look, I know that, but can we just cut past the spiritual junk and just say this? Look, you and I can be disobedient to God, and with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can make dumb choices, and we've done so, and we've gone places that we shouldn't have gone and done things we shouldn't have done, and we've gotten in a peck of trouble doing it with God with us. Amen? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, me. So, in you know, that sense of God is, is with me. Yeah, God is with you even when you do stupid stuff and He doesn't keep you from suffering the consequences oftentimes when we make dumb choices. So we're not talking about that. God isn't talking about that. No, He is saying, you don't be afraid because I will protect you. I'm talking about my manifest presence going with you where I will do the miraculous to provide for you. I will do whatever is necessary to protect you. You don't be afraid. I will go with you. How do you get that promise and that assurance in your life? Because, by the way, this is the key to fearless faith. Fearless faith is not like, I'm just going to get to the point I'm so spiritual that I'm stupid and I'm willing to try anything. No, that is not fearless faith. That is stupidity. We're talking about fearless faith where we know that God is with us. How do you know God is with you? There's only one way. Only one way to know that God is with you. You have to hear His voice and act on what you hear. This is why what we talked about last week is so central. If you can't hear the voice of the Lord... You're just going to get in trouble all the time. Because it is just a bunch of spiritual guesswork trying to figure out where you're going to go. You might as well get a spiritual Ouija board to try and figure this out. I'm kidding. Don't. But, I mean, it, it's, it's living life that foolishly. It's like I'm just going to kind of blindly wander around and try and make the best choices I can and feel, you know, grope around in the dark and ask God to bless it. You have no assurance that God is with you in any powerful way when you live like that. The only way to live knowing that God is powerfully with you, He will protect you, He will provide for you, is when you operate out of what God has said for you to do. The book of Joshua begins with, The Lord came to Joshua and said, The Lord said, Moses is dead. Now, Moses, you lead my people in. I mean, Joshua, lead my people in. How did Joshua know God would be with him? Because God said... Lead my people in. I will go with you. And here's the plan. Send the Ark of the Covenant before you. Oh, yeah. That means God is going before us. Not because God fits in a box. God is using a box to symbolize His presence. And man, the stuff that went with that box because the presence of God was there. And so God said, here's the plan. You send the Ark about a kilometer ahead of the people. You send them down to the river and you let the, the priests carrying the ark on its poles go through the river before you and let the people follow you across. And, and just this first thing that God's called them to is such a faith-stretching, impossible task. Because, I mean, think about this deal. They are about to cross the Jordan River, which if you've been to Israel today, it's such a, a small thing because everybody's siphoning water off of it now. It's such an arid land. But in those days, it was a major waterway. If you look at a map... It starts way up in the north at Caesarea Philippi and runs down to the Sea of Galilee and through that little bitty, it's a, just a great big lake. And then it runs just straight north to south from there all the way down to the Dead Sea. And so it becomes this big dividing line. They're coming from the east needing to get across into what is today the West Bank, into the heart of Israel. And, and it's a major river. It's the harvest time when the river is at flood stage. So now they're on the banks of the river. And it's not just like, just, you know, it's not like looking at Fish River. It's a river at flood stage. It is moving fast. It's super wide right now. And God's going, this is the week that you cross. And here's the plan for crossing. You send the Ark of the Covenant with the priests about a kilometer ahead of the people. And you let them go down to the water first. And then I'll make a way across. And you just let the people follow me. Let them follow the priest. You let them follow me into the land. And so in Joshua 3, 
in response to that. And I love Joshua's response. Immediately afterwards, he goes, hey, listen up, all you leaders, go tell the people. Three days from now, we break camp, get your gear together. We are headed out. That is a courageous heart, isn't it? We're not going to have a little trial run at this. Three days from now, we cross over. We're now three days down the line. Joshua 3, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap so that the people crossed opposite of Jericho. Now, I don't know whether that strikes you as a gigantic task or not, but I want you to think for a moment about having two million people. Infants, toddlers, and basically two million adults who don't know how to swim. I mean, think about this one for a second. They were born in the wilderness, in the desert. They've lived 40 years in the desert. Where do you learn to swim in the desert? You don't. They don't have a bridge. They don't have any boats. And they can't swim. And you've got to cross a big river at flood stage. This is a huge task. God says the plan is send the priests and the ark across first. And so it's this whole thing. You can't stay where you are and go with God. And so they've got to step out and do it. Can't you picture being the priests at the, at the lead end of the poles, those guys stepping up, and here's the water's edge. And as you get right up to the edge, I mean, it's just still flowing full speed. We're waiting for God to do something. Well, God said... It's not going to happen until you step in. And so the moment that they step and they put their feet in the very edge of the water and they pause and something happens. Now, I, I condensed the passage for you, but if you read the whole thing, it says that upriver at a city called Adam, A-D-A-M, we would pronounce it Adam. Really an interesting symbol in that. That God stopped the waters all the way back up to Adam. <laughs> really interesting picture. When that river was a physical embodiment of the concept that the people of God were separated from the promise of God and what God had for His people. And yet this big dirty river was keeping them from ever being able to enter in. And there was no way that they could get from where they were to the promise of God. And there was a problem that flowed far and wide and God reached all the way back to where the problem started at Adam. And he stopped that flow. And he made a way for everyone to pass through. Tell me that that isn't a picture of what God's going to ultimately accomplish through Christ. That we've got a problem that stretches all the way back to Adam and it is sin in our lives and there is nothing that you can do that can stop the flow of evil from your own heart. There is nothing that you can do to stop the flow of punishment and suffering that accompanies that. And God reaches not only into your life, but He reaches as far back as Adam and He stops that flow and He just clears it all out and says, I have made a way in the person of Christ. You pass through and enter into what I promised. It is a picture of what is to come in Christ. God reaches back to the city of Adam and he stops the water like a wall. Now I want you to think about what's happening downstream. As God has stopped the water up there, it's not like it's going to stay at this level and then you know, a wall just passes. No, what's going to happen? If, once you stop the flow, it's going to be like a bathtub draining now at this point. As the priests step in, their feet are getting wet. They're now in ankle deep water as they pause for a moment. But it's like somebody just pulled a plug on the bathtub because we were in ankle deep water, but now, just a minute later, we're, we're on ground. We're not in water anymore. Let's take another step. 
They step in ankle deep water again and the river's going down and they keep stepping the presence of the Lord going with them and then it goes down and they keep going and keep going and keep going where they should be in deeper and deeper water and it never gets more than ankle deep because the water's going down and now a whole line of two million people are following in procession and they're able to go all the way to the bottom of the river and when they get there, there's no water left and they proceed. They actually hold the Ark of the Covenant there, the presence of the Lord right there and all of the people pass through and then the Ark passes through and then the waters return again as the people enter into the land. God is doing the impossible. But they had to be willing to step into the water. It is a picture of God is going to lead you into some things that you've never been in before. And some of them are going to be scary. And they're not going to begin to take shape. You're not going to see the provision of God until you step in and get your feet wet as God goes in with you into that. And that brings us to the fourth truth. And that is sometimes what God's going to lead you to do is going to be to just step into God-sized assignments. It's going to be so much bigger than what you can do. Now, here's kind of the, the good news and bad news in that. The good news is a lot of what God's going to say in your life, it's going to be fairly simple. And it'll seem that way. Some of it's going to be kind of small and seemingly insignificant. God's going to prompt you and speak to you and lead you countless times where his prompting was, you know, to give somebody something. And it didn't, you know... Change your lifestyle to give them that. He's going to prompt you to make a phone call, to check on someone, to send a text. He's going to prompt you to go across and introduce yourself or speak to someone. And you don't even really know why, but you just felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You ever felt that before? Just that this is God speaking. And it's a little test of your faith, but it's not God-sized. It's, you know, it does test how much Jesus is Lord of your life. But a bunch of little leadings. Sometimes God will speak in your life and it will just be about you. Sometimes when God speaks in your life... He will be showing you how much He loves you and what He sees in you. Sometimes it will be a word of correction, but it won't turn your world upside down. But rest assured, mingled in with all of these other things that God says, from time to time, God's going to speak in your life and He is going to begin to give you a glimpse of something that He's doing, that He's inviting you to be in the middle of, and it is going to be so much bigger than what you can hope to accomplish. And in that moment, you're going to need to hear the voice of the Lord saying, be courageous, don't be terrified, don't be afraid, because the Lord your God is with you. The passage we just read, wonderful declaration of victory. The people marched through and they emerged in the promised land. What were the last two words that we read in that passage in Joshua 3? Two key words, the very end of the passage we read. Opposite Jericho. <laughs> Sounds harmless enough, doesn't it? I mean, we're over here having a pep rally for Jesus on the banks of the river because we just got through. We didn't think that was possible. and We just got our first taste of the promised land and woo -woo, go, Jesus. Life is good. In fact, this is such a special moment. Hey, before you bring the ark up out of the, the riverbed, let's send 12 representatives down to get big rocks right out of the heart of the riverbed. Let's build a big monument with those 12 stones. And, and every time our kids and grandkids and on down the line pass by this pile of stones and they go, well, what's that all about? We'll be able to say, hey, that's a marker. We never want to forget the day. We saw the hand of God. We passed through the Jordan River and we didn't even get wet because the hand of God went before us. He made a miraculous way. We're having a big pep rally for that. And somewhere in the middle of all that, somebody looks up and goes, holy smoke. 
We thought the Jordan River looked like a big deal. Anybody notice that gigantic wall over there? I think there's a city behind that. Folks, we're not talking about a fort like in cowboy and Indian days with a bunch of saplings around the city. We're talking about a gigantic wall made of stone that completely encompassed a large city. It was so thick, so wide, that chariots rode around on top. That was bad news for a couple of reasons. One, if you came in with a bunch of M1 Abrams tanks, it's going to take you a while to shell the walls of that city until you'd have any breach that you could get through that wall. But beyond that, you've got a, a bunch of essentially unarmed nomads who are not an army and they're going up against not only a fortress of a city but they have a military the fact that chariots ride around on top is a reflection of the fact that they have the weapons of war and they have the training and now the next challenge is hey you're supposed to take this you know i promise you the land and the crops and the vineyards and cities that you never built well the first city that you get to encounter is the great city of Jericho. And here's what God said about that. Again, remember, the difficulty and the excitement always starts with God speaking. Well, God's about to speak again. In Joshua 6, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. What's God about to do? This isn't a trick question. What's God about to do? He's about to give his people the city of Jericho. How do you know that? There you go. We know not because they said, oh, well, it's the first city, so we must be supposed to take this city. Nope. We can't make assumptions. God has spoken and God has said, I'm about to give you this city. So here's the plan. I mean, at this point, I've got to be like, OK, God, you are the ultimate leader. I hope you have a military genius kind of mind. I cannot wait to hear your plan. What is it? Okay, here it is. March around the city once with all the armed men. Okay, that sounds good. We'll do reconnaissance. Maybe we're looking for sort of a back gate, a back way in, and we'll, we'll slip in by night. Do this for six days. That's a lot of reconnaissance, God. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. Okay, Lord, that's a lot of marching. We're going to be tired. That's going to take all day. All right, when you've done that, have the, the priest... Blowing the trumpets. Okay, so we're not doing this secretly. Obviously, we're going to blow horns the whole time we're marching around. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets. Okay, get ready because here, here's your big charge. This is your moment. All right, God, tell us what to do so we know how to rush the city. Well, here's what I want you to do. Have all the people give a loud shout. Okay, and then what do we do? Have them give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse. And the people will go up, every man straight in. Okay, you can't tell me that there weren't some people in the hearing of that who went, that's your plan? <laughs> For real? March around the city and then do it again the next day and the next and the next. And do that six days and on the seventh day, march around it until we're the losers of the dizzy bat race. I mean, you know, we're just going to be dizzy after doing this for seven times. And we're going to toot our horns the whole time that we do it. And when we've done this for seven days and seven times on the seventh day, we're going to shout. How's that going to work? Okay, we had a little fun with this in the first service. We're going to pretend like we've just marched around seven times on the seventh day. 
And we're the people of God, and so we're going to shout just to see what happens. So are you ready? On the count of three, we're going to give a big holy shout. One, two, three. Y'all got the same results as the first service. No walls fell down. What's the difference? What's the difference? There was one voice missing, wasn't there? You know, y'all made it. Y'all outshouted the first service, by the way, pretty nicely. I'm, I'm impressed. Some, some shouters in this crowd. Two million people marched around a total of 13 times, blowing their horns, and they all shouted. And don't you know, there's some part of them that's going, how in the world is this going to work? How is this going to work? How is this going to work? I think most every time I've ever taken a big step of faith into something that was God-sized, there's a part of my heart that's going, oh my goodness, if God doesn't come through, I am in deep trouble. This is going to crash and burn. If God isn't here, how is he going to do this? This could be a mess. Even to the moment of it's time to act, it's time to shout. And in the middle of two million people going, ah, there's one other voice that is shouting. And it is a voice that is not shouting, ah, it is a voice that is shouting, fall. And when the voice of the Lord says fall, it doesn't matter how tall or how thick the wall, walls come a tumbling down. And when the people shouted, and the Lord declared, fall, the walls fell. And the people charged in, and the city was taken. And everyone perished that day, save Rahab and those in her home by the hand of the Lord. Hebrews 11 sums it up in the hall of faith. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. God will call you to God-sized tasks. You cannot get around it. And you can't go with God unless you're willing to leave a comfortable, safe place and step into things that are beyond what you can do. So the real key question is, well, one, when's the last time you stepped into something that was God-sized that you couldn't possibly do, but you stepped into it because God said to do it? And the bigger question is, where is your heart being prompted right now? Maybe you haven't heard a clear word from the Lord, but you have felt that, that nudging. You, you know what I'm talking about, where God is preparing your heart? He is starting to nudge you in a direction, and you don't even have a full, clear picture of what it is yet, but you feel yourself being moved in a direction, and it's like, oh my goodness, I can sort of imagine what that may mean. I can't fathom how that could ever happen. I can't begin to picture... How I could ever do that or how I could ever be a part of that. What is God nudging you toward, leading you toward that's God-sized? And you may say, what in the world does that look like? I just, I don't know what that could possibly look like. I'll give you a good example. Our students, uh, by and large, tend to come to the first service so they can do their small group time during the second. And I've just challenged our students in this regard. When you look at your high school... Fairhope High School, Daphne High School, Robertsdale High School. When you look at your school, what do you see and what does God see? Do you see things the way that God would have them be? Universally, the answer is no. Well, what do you think God's heart is for that place? Well, it's not hard to imagine what a radical change that God would want to make on those campuses and in those cultures where so much darkness rules. Well, what would God want to do to set that in order? It's, it's 
exciting to consider. And if you've ever seen what happens when the Spirit of God just gets loose in the hearts and lives of a campus full of students, whether you're talking about 1,400 students at a local high school or 35,000 students at a university campus, which has been fun to watch here in recent years. When you begin to dream about that, and you begin to let your heart wrestle with, but how would God bring that about? Can I tell you how He most frequently does that? He speaks to a heart. He speaks to a student. And He begins to give them a glimpse of what He would like to do on that campus. And He begins to lead them to do some things that nobody else is doing that may feel crazy, that may make them feel like total oddballs. And one student steps out and begins to take a stand and begins to lead in some things that one student could never hope to do. And I've watched it happen. I've watched it happen on multiple occasions where an entire campus is impacted and changed. And it all started with one student who saw a God-sized calling to see a campus transformed. Well, adults, that is not unique to students at all. You think about where you live and where you work and the circles that you operate in where darkness reigns or where darkness has great influence. And you start asking yourself, what does God see when He looks where you are now? And, you know, with God's eyes, He looks beyond how things are at the moment. He looks at what He wants to do in that place. What does God see in your sphere of influence, in the circle of people around you, where you work, where you live, where you operate? And what is it that God wants to do on a God-sized scale? And then when you begin to open your heart up to, and what would God say to me? What, what is God saying to me about that? Because the moment that you begin to glimpse what God wants to do, the call of God is tied to that. You're going to begin to recognize a call toward your role in that thing. Don't expect it to be small. Don't expect it to be something that you can accomplish. That's where you press in and you listen for the voice of God. Because once you've heard His voice, you can rest in this. I will be with you. I will go before you. You can be courageous. You can be strong because I will be with you in that. This is where faith gets stretched. This is where faith gets tested. Now, there's one final truth that I've got to share with you. And I really debated about whether or not to include this because in some ways it's going to sound like, oh, that's not ending on a high note. This is a key part of this teaching that I don't want you to, to fail. to. I just don't want you to, to miss this. And that is that our faith is to be in God more than it is in desirable outcomes. We started at the beginning of Hebrews 11 and we're reminded that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. We live in a time when we love to take passages like that and use that as a part of a name it and claim it theology where we get to just dream up the life that we'd love to have. And then we take promises like this and throw them at God and say, so make my life comfortable. Take away my suffering. Take away my financial challenges. Make my life good. I can't see it, but I'm going to believe it until you make it happen, God. And that creates some terrible dilemmas for us. Because when we're the ones who speak it to God, instead of acting in faith out of hearing what God has said, we get things completely out of order, and that becomes us-centered living instead of God-centered living. Are you with me? This is a key part of the teaching. Tell you where the problem comes in. Problem comes in whenever you run around claiming the promises of God and trying to 
to stick them on what we want, the desirable outcomes that we want, and we don't get some of those desirable outcomes. I stood in this spot yesterday, and I preached Bertie Dacus's funeral. Her body lay right here. And I can tell you, I watched Bertie walk through this whole process. And every time I talked with Bertie through this entire process, she was a faithful follower of Christ who was trusting Him for healing. Don't over-spiritualize what I just said. She was asking God to heal her physical body. And I stood right with her in that, as many of you did. Can't tell you how many times we prayed over her, laid hands on her, anointed her, and asked God to destroy this cancer and to heal her body. She had a window of time where she was better, a brief window, and then she got sick again. And we prayed and we prayed in faith. We begged God for mercy and for healing. And the reality is she got sicker and sicker. And at 3 o'clock last Sunday, her body gave out and she went home to be with the Lord. Now, you tell me how you reconcile a name-it-and-claim-it theology where we get to run to God and we get to decide what God's going to do and we try and hold Him to it by grabbing hold of the promises of Scripture and saying, God, you've got to do this. There's nothing wrong with us praying for Bertie's healing. It was appropriate, and I, I'm, I don't regret one minute of the time that she and we believed God to heal her body. But what we watched take place in Bertie's life is a glimpse of the kind of thing that we all experience in some shape or form in our lives and our families. You see, when you look at the whole of Hebrews 11, where the first three quarters of it, we wanted to stand and shout and cheer because what we read in Hebrews 11 is, by faith, Abraham accomplished these things. By faith, Noah built an ark and people were saved. By faith, Moses led the people. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob, by faith, the people of God believed God and saw the walls of Jericho fall. And he just, he's just building and building. And finally, he's to the point, I, just, I don't even have time to tell you about how by faith, you know, God used people like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and David and just on and on. How by faith they conquered kingdoms and they closed the, the mouths of closed the mouths of lions and how they just one thing after another that they accomplished and had victory. They received their dead back to life, raised to life again. And then he turns on a dime. And in the middle of this description of these great heroes of the faith, he says, and others. Others faced jeers and persecution. Others faced great suffering because of their faith and they refused to turn back. Others were so sawed in two. They were imprisoned because of their faith. They were put to death by the sword because of their faith. They faced poverty, suffering. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. They went around in animal skins. Life was so difficult. The world was not worthy of them. And he concludes the thought at the end of Hebrews 11 by saying, These all were commended for their faith, yet none of them had received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do you hear what he's saying in that? He's saying when the faithful experience victory, 
when walls fall, when darkness is defeated, when, when justice is done and there is victory, God is in that. God is in the middle of that. But He said there are a lot of other people who are just as faithful and they'll face suffering. And sometimes that suffering isn't easily alleviated. And sometimes in this life, it's not alleviated. Sometimes sickness leads to death. Sometimes poverty doesn't give way to great wealth, as some on TV would have us believe. Sometimes you're in a, in a difficult relationship and you pray and pray and pray and you're just laying claim to the promises of God and, and just believing God for a healed marriage and sometimes it's not healed and sometimes it doesn't even survive. Sometimes you live with great suffering. Sometimes you live with great sickness, great burdens, and you're faithful to the Lord. And here's the promise of God. The promise of God was not your suffering is going to be taken away. Your body's going to be well. You're going to have lots of money in the bank. No, the promise of God is still the same. Be courageous. Don't be terrified. Why? Because the Lord your God will be with you. You see, when the writer of Hebrews started this chapter and he said, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see, he wasn't saying being sure of a happy outcome. He wasn't saying you get to always be sure that in every situation this family member is going to be well. This is suddenly going to be healed. This, is, this marriage is going to be restored. You can't always be sure of the outcome because our faith is not in the outcome. When he said be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see, he was talking about the presence of God. A God you cannot see, but who has promised, I will be with you. And sometimes me being with you means that when you come to a river that you can't hope to pass through, sometimes it means that me being with you, that I just drop my hand in place and I stop the water and you pass through on dry ground. Sometimes me being with you means you just stand and shout and my voice joins with yours and the walls fall and you walk in victory. But sometimes my being with you means that you step in the water and the water remains. And you take another step and the water gets deeper and deeper. And sometimes the promise of God simply means that God walks with you through the deep waters. I want to promise you what we celebrated yesterday, it's real. As painful as it was to watch, there was real joy and victory in that. Birdie passed through the waters. And they got deep. I got to watch. Some of you got to watch close up. And the Lord was with her. I never saw her at a moment of time where she was terrified. Because even in the deep waters, the Lord was with her. Sometimes the waters are forced to recede. And sometimes we're just forced to pass through the waters and the Lord go with us. That's okay. Because this life is not the end. He said the world is not worthy of them. And he said, you don't get all the promises of God in this life. He said, these faithful ones, they didn't receive the promise. They're only going to get to receive the rest of the promise with us. He's talking about in eternity when God's got forever to iron the rest of that out and to settle accounts. And he is faithful and he will do that. And until that time, you rest in the fact you can be strong. You can be courageous because God will be with you whatever lies ahead. 
Rest assured, as you hear His voice, as you respond to that, He's going to stretch you. He's going to test you. He's going to lead you into some big stuff. He'll be with you wherever He leads you. Will you join me as we turn to Him in prayer? Lord, I thank You that You're not done with us. I thank You that You are taking us to new places. And I pray that You would birth in us a faith to believe You for that and ears that hear Your voice in that. I pray that You'd speak to our hearts and that You would help us to recognize what You're saying, what You're leading us to, and how we can join You in that. I want to invite you just in your own heart. Would you pause for a moment? And maybe you're at that place that you just need to step into faith, that you need to step into a either a renewed or a first-time relationship with Christ. And if you invite Him into your life or back in as Lord of your life, He'll respond to that. Why don't you invite Him to do that now? Maybe you've known Christ for a long time, but you haven't heard His voice or you haven't been obedient to what you've heard. Would you just today say, Lord, I will follow where you lead. Just speak and go with me. Lord, would you speak in a fresh way in each of our lives? Would you lead us to new levels of obedience and to a deeper faith? We trust you for that. And we pray this in the wonderful, strong, matchless name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.